Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osban, here with my friend Chabruta and Gordon. Our DAP today, Masach Megillah, DAP Yudtet, page 19. Well, we have some new Mishnahs here. I'm going to start with the first one, and we'll do the second one. So if you have a resident of an you know, unwalled town or city who goes to a walled city, right? And the idea here is that the Megillah is read in the walled city on the 15th of Adar, and they normally would observe Purim on the 14th of Adar. If he's going to go back uh, to, you know, his, or his original place, uh, then he, and again, the mystery here doesn't define exactly what that means, um, you know, then he should read it, he should read it in his place, but if not, then he should read it, uh, he should read it with the residents of his current location. From where must a person read the Megillah and does he fulfill uh, his obligation. And this, I think, is an interesting question, which the Gemara will also elaborate on a little bit more. I'll read a little bit of that. Um, but the idea is that do you have to read the whole Megillah or do you just have to read parts of Megillah, like just the part that's important? So Rabbi Meir Omer Kula. So Rabbi Meir says, no, you have to read the whole Megillah. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Me'ishuhudi. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, he just has to read on from the Basuk of Ishuhudi, which is chapter 2, verse 5. Rabbi Yosu Omer Me'achar Dvarim Ha'elah. Rabbi Yossi says he has to read from chapter 3, verse 1. Um, and so that is, you know, an interesting Mishnah. It really sort of feels like it should be two Mishnahs uh, because it doesn't really, you know, sort of uh, fit together. Um, so the first thing that the Gemara wants to go through is what exactly do they mean by this, uh, you know, you know, that like Shatid Lachzor, what exactly, uh, what exactly does that mean? Um, and, you know, exactly how did they get that exactly? And they quote some psukim um, from the Megillah itself um, in order to, uh, to prove that. Um, but the idea, and then they talk a little bit about the villages and things like that. But the idea basically is, is that it's wherever your permanent place is going to be. So um, some people would say it's, you know, where you're going to be sleeping. I actually had this happen to me once that we left on a flight um, from, uh, well, we were leaving, we lived in Yerushalayim at the time. This was like 20 years ago. And we were flying out on Yud Dalid um, Nisan. And so we were, sorry, Yud Dalid Adar. And we were going to arrive in America the morning of Yud Dalit Adar. But we were in Yerushalayim. <laughs> so there was a, uh, so there was a um, minion for Megillah reading that took place, a Megillah reading uh, that took place sort of on the outskirts of Yerushalayim that was specifically for people who were in Yerushalayim that day but needed to keep it with Yodalad, not Tedvad the way Yerushalayim does because it's a walled city. And so we went to that Megillah reading basically on our way to the airport, flew to America, and then we caught Megillah the next morning in America, even though we were really living in Yerushalayim at the time. So that's basically, I think, like a good way to describe what they're talking about, you know, so we knew we weren't going to be Lachzor. We weren't going to be going back to Yerushalayim. So therefore we had to read it as Yudalit, but we had to find a special place to do it that sort of was designated on the outskirts of Yerushalayim where they could read it in Yudalit. Um, and then the Gemara gets into a uh, interesting discussion about sort of this piece of, um, you know, 
when does it have to uh, be read from? Tanya, so they quote a brace here, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Omer, Mi Balayla So now they're going to give us some additional opinions here. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's opinion is, is that you only have to read the Megillah from chapter 6, verse 1, which is Balayla which we know, you know, generally gets interpreted as that that's sort of, the, that's the, the parak where sort of the action starts to shift, right? The king has Achashverosh, you know, wakes up, he has some sort of, you know, dream or something. And that's when he decides that Mordechai should actually uh, be dressed in, in the Levush Machut. And that's where things start to turn um, in the Megillah. So that's the opinion of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. The Kulan Mikra Chad So Rabbi Yochanan says all these Tanayim who even have different opinions about what part of the Megillah must be read. It all comes from this Pasuk. So this is chapter 9, verse 29. Then Esther and uh, the queen and Mordechai the Jew wrote all about the acts of power. All right. So basically, the question here is, what's the tokef? Like, what is the tokef that they wrote? In other words, what's the key to the story? So the one who says you have to read everything, that was the opinion of Rabbi Meir, right? It's the power of Achashverosh. It's the act of power of Achashverosh. And so therefore you would read it from the beginning. The person who says you read it from Ishudi, he's talking about the power of Mordechai. And the one who says after these things, right, that pasuk, he thinks you have to read from the power of Haman. Because remember, Haman doesn't really come into power until the third parak. And the one who says that you have to read it from Balayla Hu, that's Paragvav, the sixth chapter, is from the power of uh, a miracle. So I, I happen to love, I thought that was a great passage to understand that. Rav Huna has a different opinion. He says it's from this Pasuk, Esther uh, chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, which says, right, because of the words of the letter and that and and of that which they saw concerning this matter and that which had befallen them. Manda Amarkula, right? The one who says that you have to read everything. Mara'a, what did they see? Wait, what did they see? Right? That you saw Achashverosh used all the Kalim of the Beit Hamidash. Al Kacha, right? And what was befallen them? Mishum de Hashiv Shibim Shani and below Ifru, right? And that, uh, that uh, you know, he calculated the 70 years of the, the Babylonian exile and the Jews were not redeemed, right? And therefore he thought they were never going to actually be delivered. Right? And what had befallen them, sorry, that refers to, uh, uh, that, sorry, I read this right. I said, concerning this matter, that which befallen them was that which he killed Vashti. So in other words, what Rav Huna is doing is he's taking this pasuk and saying, you need to read from the part of the story that hits the Mara'a, Al-Kacha, Umahigi Alehem. And so the Al-Kula, the, the one who says you have to read everything, is going to include even the events that take place in Paragal. Umanzam or Ishudi, the person who says Ishudi, Mara'a Mordechai di Kanim Bahaman. So what the saw is going to be Mordechai when he acted the way he acted with Haman. Al-Kacha, right, concerning the matter, this Shavi Nafshe Avodazara is going to be uh, because Haman made himself an object of idol worship. Umahigi Alam Di'it Rechish Nisa, 
that which had befallen them is referring to the fact that the miracle took place. So that's why you have to read from Meish um, Yehudi, because you have to get that part of Mordechai in. The one who says it's Me'achar Ma'ela. Ma'ra'a, what's the Ma'ra'a? Haman shenitz kanei b'chol ha'yudim. That Haman saw, you know, and became jealous of the Jews. Al-kacha, right, concerning this matter. Mishum de Mordechai, lo yuchra v'lo yishkachave. That Mordechai didn't bow down. And what happened to them is actually referring to he, uh, him and his sons, meaning the, the Haman and his sons, being hanged from the gallows. But what's interesting is, is that Umahigia, for some of the opinions, the nace or the, you know, or it could refer to killing Avashi, or it could refer to Haman. In other words, here there's a little bit more uh, variety of opinion of what this could mean. And then finally, Umandamar mi balayla hahu. Mara is when Achashverosh tells him to bring the Book of Remembrance. Right, that the concerning the matters that Esther invited Haman with her to this banquet. Right, and the what befall them which refers to the miracle that took place. So they each do this. According to uh, uh, you know, uh, according to their understanding, these psukim, and we have two opinions of how they counted. Right, but Rabbi Chavo tells us that it's basically uh, you you basically need to read everything, and and even according to the one who says it still needs to be. Uh, from a Megillah that sort of was uh, written in its entirety. Like, you can't have a Megillah that starts from Ishu Hudi, is, is how I think we understand that. Um, and then finally, I'm not going to read this part. One other interesting thing here, and then Anne, I'll turn it over to you, is a discussion about how you have to read from a Megillah that's written to be a Megillah. You're not allowed to read Hakorav a Megillah Ktuba, Bain Haktubim Lo Yotse. This is a statement of Rav Yehuda in the name of Shmuel. If you read a Megillah, that was put in the middle of like a whole scroll of Ketubim, that's not considered to be okay. It has to be a Megillah that's basically written just for itself as a Megillah. And I thought that was another interesting piece to sort of this action of how we read, that it can't be by heart. It has to be written by itself. Um, And then the Gemara even talks about a case where like, let's say the part of the Megillah is written a little shorter or longer. In other words, the clap, the parchment itself is shorter or longer than the other piece of the scroll then it would be okay. In other words, it really has to be designated that it's different than everything else surrounding it. Okay. Um, I think there's a lot going on there that I think is um, both rich in terms of the narrative and then rich also in terms of the practice where we go with it. I want to jump now to the second Mishnah, um, which is actually very brief and perhaps a little bit difficult. Hakol k'sherin likrot et Everybody is fit, is kosher to read the Megillah. And of course, there's commentary here talking about for whom is everybody fit to read the Megillah? Because on the one hand, everybody is fit to read the Megillah, but maybe, certainly according to some commentaries and halachic authorities, women should not be reading for men. It depends on what you say the mitzvah is. Is it to hear? Is it to read? And so on, which is far beyond the scope of the words of the Mishnah, but it's also very much implicit in the words of the Mishnah. And then it goes on to say, right, it said, if everybody is um, fit to read, we're going to now have some exp- exceptions. Chutz mechere shotavakatan, except for, and we'll talk about what this means, the definitions here, a deaf person, a shota is a, 
somebody who has some kind of, I don't know, intellectual cognitive impairment. I mean, not just some kind of, a significant one. And then Katan is a minor, somebody who's under, the, it's a just debate over how old a Katan is for this kind of purpose, um, but certainly uh, certainly under the age of mitzvot, meaning under 12 or 13 for a girl or a boy. Rabbi Huda machshir bakatan, and Rabbi Huda disagrees and says that no, no, a minor is fit to read the Megillah, and that's its own discussion. Um, I want to address here the question of Cheresh. We have talked about Cheresh in the past and recognized that for the most part, when the Gemara, or a Mishnah for that matter, is using the term Cheresh, it's a specific technical term uh, for those who, in that era, who were deaf and mute and were very often um, not disconnected from communication, which was a really difficult thing, obviously. Um, and and the treatment there was, you know, to what extent is somebody who is deaf and mute cognitively impaired? And anybody who knows that Helen Keller, who was also blind for that matter, graduated from Radcliffe, knows that we don't have to worry about the cognition side of things in our definitions today. But it's not so clear from the time of the of the Mishnah, except for one thing. Commentaries here point out that the Cheresh in this case cannot be a deaf mute. Because a deaf mute, somebody who is mute, forget about the deaf part of it, somebody who is mute is not in the category of reading from the Megillah, right? The issue here of calling somebody cheresh, somebody here is deaf without being mute, meaning the person cannot hear his own voice, he cannot regulate his own voice in that context, and it, it poses a, a difficulty. This is perhaps why the Mishnah excludes the cheresh, but it seems to be pretty clear, at least according to the commentaries, that the the question of cognitive ability here is removed from the discussion because the presumption is that somebody has the intellectual cognitive ability, in fact, to read the Megillah, except for not the voice to, um, and I'm sorry, has the voice to do so and the cognitive ability to do so, but simply could not hear himself read, which is its own, again, it's, a, its own conundrum. Um, in the Rushalmi, Yerushalmi treats the same person as a cherish like all the other cherishim. And then the question is, you know, why would it, the the commentary question is, you know, why would it be here? Why would the term of deaf mute be in this Mishnah? And the question then is, both, I think, are answered um, of the placement in this Mishnah, that cherish shotavakatan is a threesome for many discussions of who is obligated and how. So the phrasing of cherish shotavakatan applies here to say, well, it just kind of got included with the Shota and Katan side of things, if you want to take the Yerushalmi's approach. Or you can look at it and say, well, it's not the regular Cheresh, but the phrasing always puts the Cheresh together with the Shota and Katan. So here, even though the reasoning is different, meaning it's because of literally not being able to hear, and if the mitzvah is to hear the Megillah, as opposed to reading it out loud, it becomes even more problematic. Um, I know I'm a little bit talking around it, but the issue here is, let's, the, the key point here is to recognize that the cheresh, by virtue of being able to read the Megillah, is not mute, is not the usual concern of the stereotypical cognitive imp impediment of the cheresh back in the day. And it is nonetheless phrased here as if it's the same grouping, because that is the classical grouping here. Okay, the Gemara goes on to say, well, who are we talking about here? Uh, or who, whose opinion is this, rather? Man Tana Cheresh de Avad Namilo, right? Who is the Tana who said, who taught this, that the, that when a deaf person would read, that it would be 
um, not valid. And the key term here in the Gemara is di'avad, meaning it's already been done. What would happen if you, if a deaf person who cannot hear himself read read the Megillah and you listening, like, could does that count? Does it count for him, even though he can't hear? Does it count for you who can hear? You know, in the public reading, let's say. Amar of Matna, Rabbi So the question here, of course, was whose opinion is the Mishnah? And the answer is, Rav Matna says, Amatana, says that Rabbi, it was Rabbi How do we know this? Because we have a Mishnah elsewhere. It's not HaKorei at Shema, Velo Hishmiya Loozno Yatsa. We have a very strong statement about Kriyat Shema, the mitzvah of reading Shema, um, where somebody who reads Shema out loud and cannot hear it in his own ears, nonetheless fulfills his obligation. Rabbi Yosemar lo yatsa. And it's Rabbi Yossi who said that person does not fulfill his obligation. So then it makes sense to say that this Mishnah is in accord with Rabbi Yossi because it's the same situation of reading and the reader not being able to hear it. But presumably the other opinion would say, yes, he should be, fulfill his own obligation, right? At the very least his own. Um, okay. And now the Gemara is going to really ask some sharp questions on the Mishnah. So, you know, where do we get the fact that this whole Mishnah, again, that it's really going to be the opinion of Rabiosi, and that he would also say, that he would agree that after the fact it would not be okay. Maybe after the fact it would be okay. Maybe the Gemara is really, maybe the Mishnah is really according to the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. How would that be? Meaning, according to Rabbi Huda, the diavad situation, meaning the the person who cannot hear has read the Megillah and is therefore, after the fact, uh, fulfills the obligation, is really different than whether you start out with a blank slate. Nobody's read the Megillah yet that day. Who are you going to choose? And the difference there, according to Rabbi Huda, according to Rabbi Huda, we would say that he should not do it lechatchila. But if if he did do it, then after the fact, yes, you fulfilled the obligation. And so then the Gemara doesn't like that. Lo don't think this. And here, this business of the language of whether cheresh means the usual deaf mute cheresh versus the cheresh that that all the the commentaries I saw said is distinct in this particular Mishnah. It, it clouds the issue because if you want to say that because the shota and the katan are together with the cheresh, so therefore the same way that the shota and the katan can't after the fact be fulfill the obligation, so then you want to say that the cheresh also can't because isn't this a group? This triumvirate is always together. Except for the Gemara says, well, maybe that's not really true. Maybe they're not really equivalent because it really is a different case. Meaning maybe these are different... Kid to like this is that it is, and this is like that it is, which is idiomatic, but certainly it draws the distinction between the cases. Midakatani Seifa, at the end of the Mishnah, it says, Rabbi Huda Machshir Bakatan, Lav Rabbi The moment you say that Rabbi Huda is the one talking at the end of the Mishnah, then why would you think that Rabbi Huda is the one talking at the beginning of the Mishnah? Meaning, and perhaps then the distinction between Lechatchila uh, and Bidieved. Right, that is done, you know, in an ideal way or only after the fact, um, where the question of whether the Kheresh can read and fulfill his obligation, perhaps Rabbi Huda's opinion, or we'll say strongly, that Rabbi Huda, it does not make sense to say that Rabbi Huda's the beginning voice of the Mishnah, 
when he's named as a dissenting voice at the end of the Mishnah. Um, so then, so then, you know, it works out to say that it's not Rabbi Yehuda. Um, and the Gemara goes on to say, well, maybe the whole thing was Rabbi Yehuda, but this is why it would be Rabbi Yehuda at the end. I think that's really a little bit of a difficult kind of finding of, of how, how we identify the, the speakers within a Mishnah. Um, but in any case, the, at the end of the day, really, the question is, um, what do you do with this person who, a deaf person who can speak but cannot hear? So I'm jumping down now towards the very end of the daf. Elahad Tani, Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi, So this is our case. A deaf person, meaning one who cannot hear but does speak or and does speak, and does not hear, Right, so then he, that same person can set aside truma. We're going back to the kind of temple mitzvot, right? Um, this person would set aside truma, even lechatchila, meaning even in the ideal fashion. And who said that? E Rabbi Yehuda diavad in lechatchila lo. If you say that it's the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, because again, that's really the the all of this discussion is couched in a, a investigation of who said what. Um, but if it was Rabbi Yossi, then even after the fact, you cannot do it. So, but we seem to say that he can do it, meaning that the deaf person who can hear, no, who can speak, would be able to give truma, which at the end of the day brings us back around to say, well, then it would seem that he in fact could read and at the very least, after the fact, fulfill his obligation. Um, I think the Gemara dives in um, kind of to the side measure. Whose whose opinion is this? Rather than get to the meat of it of like, what does it mean for a, a deaf person who can speak to be, to fulfill his obligation or to not? Which I think is the more interesting question. And and I, I feel like maybe it's intentional that they're kind of sidestepping. Yeah, it, it it may be. I I don't know. It's a it's a good question. I didn't quite think about it that way. Why do you think they're sidestepping? I mean, listen, it's a very common Gemara thing to say whose opinion is here, and obviously they want to line it up with other statements by those same you know Tanaim. But I feel like the case of a I don't know. I don't know how common it was for somebody to be able to speak but also be deaf. Meaning nowadays we think that's very common. But then when the cheresh, the standard cheresh, was someone who also couldn't speak, so then was this an unusual case? And why aren't they spent? I don't know. I want them to spend more time saying, but he can speak. So you know he, he's there, like with kavana for the mitzvah, right? Like, but they don't. But I, that's what I want them to do. Okay. <laughs> I, hear, I hear that. I hear that. No, it is. It ends a little weirdly. It doesn't seem to be figured out as well as they normally do. Right, right. Well, that's, that's another our, way to say it nicely. Yeah. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.